This is a recording from Reunions Weekend 2010 at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. As our global population increases and resources decrease, how do we rethink our cities to be healthier, more sustainable, and efficient? Timothy Beatley from the Department of Urban and Environmental Planning at the School of Architecture and Paxton Marshall, Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering, addressed some of these questions at a seminar on June 4, 2010. Historically, we probably haven't thought enough about the role of cities in, in addressing those, those problems. And that's essentially what we've been doing a lot of in the School of Architecture, especially in the planning program in the last few years. So we understand that cities, uh, when you look at where carbon is emitted, greenhouse gases are emitted, where energy is consumed, where food is consumed, it's, it's in cities. And we're becoming an increasingly urbanized uh, planet. Well, cities also represent, in my opinion, the best hope we have for achieving truly sustainable uh, results, truly sustainable futures. So very, very exciting things happening in cities, and cities around the world are rising to the fore and, and setting very, very ambitious uh, environmental targets and, and green ambitions. So um, i like to start with this. Uh, Herbie Day is a British filmmaker, activist, um, who says, the cities of the 21st century are where human destiny will be played out, where the future of the biosphere will be determined. There will be no sustainable world without sustainable cities. It's very, very true. The guy on the left actually is not Herbert Girardet. Uh, his name is Klaus Bondum, and he is uh, the deputy mayor for the city of Copenhagen. And he is holding up um, a, an aspirational document for, for that uh, city. We actually filmed him, if we get to showing this little clip, you'll see, you'll see Klaus in, in action until recently his portfolio has been environment and sustainability and there's been an election and he's shifted over to a different subject area. But he's my stand-in for uh, all, all of the high-level administration going on uh, around the world, uh, mayors and, and deputy mayors and uh, local officials of various sorts um, who are aspiring to, to different uh, futures and imagining their cities as, as different uh, places. So this aspirational document he's holding up, uh, they're now calling themselves, um, Copenhagen, calling themselves an eco-metropole. And they are setting some very, very ambitious targets for 2015 in this document. Uh, minimum um, green spaces per capita, maximum greenhouse gas emissions per capita, um, uh, targets for bicycle riding, their, their, their 2012 or 2015 target uh, is they, they hope to reach a point where 50% of the home-to-work trips in that city are made on bicycles. That's pretty amazing, pretty hard to imagine. So it doesn't sound very realistic in the American context. And, and, and it would be a little uh, funny if not for the fact that Copenhagen is already almost at 40% of home-to-work trips made uh, on bicycles. So they're actually um, you know, continuing to push uh, forward and continuing to imagine uh, even less uh, carbon-intensive, energy-intensive uh, city. And in fact, they, the more, most recent news from Copenhagen is that they have declared that they're going to be the first carbon-neutral capital city in the world. That's pretty, pretty ambitious, um, and, but it's a terrific model for the rest of us. So, so uh, my stand-in, Copenhagen is leading the way, of course, but there, what's interesting about the time we're in, lots of other cities, um, it's, it's not just the usual uh, suspects. It's not just the uh, Portland, Oregon's. Um, it's it's Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Chicago. We know, of course, Mayor Mayor Daley in Chicago has declared that that city is going to be the greenest city in the U.S. 
uh, sometimes the world, depending on the day. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg in New York, uh, not to be outdone by Chicago, says that you know, New York City is going to be the first ecologically sustainable city of the 21st century. Uh, I was in Houston the week before last. I've uh, been spending a lot of time in Houston, and Houston, many of you may know about the former, now former mayors, uh, just stepped step down running for governor, Bill White, uh, who has been re-elected a number of times, actually, in, in Houston, based on a green platform, and, and uh, recently has been famous for saying that Houston is going to be the greenest city in the U.S. So if Houston is saying this, uh, something is happening. Something good is, is going on. So, so these are both um, daunting and exciting times um, to be in planning and, and design and to be thinking about cities. I can't remember, actually, a more exciting time to be in city planning right now, where there's has been, uh, there hasn't been a time where there's been you know, more interest in, in planning or more hope for the possibilities of planning. So this larger uh, agenda for cities is multifaceted. There are lots of things we're trying to do all at once. Uh, it's a daunting agenda in that sense. We're, we're trying to create the conditions where we respond to, uh, we create healthy places, we create places that, that allow people to walk and bicycle and break out of their kind of sedentary uh, light, lifestyles, places where we we want to profoundly reduce energy consumption, where we want to reduce the, the size of the ecological footprint. Uh, cities, again, are the best place, hold the best hope for, for, for doing that. So we want, to, we want to expand and increase the quality of life. At the same time, we reduce that environmental impact. That's, that's probably my best shorthand definition for what sustainability uh, is all about. So here are some, some little snapshots of the goals that we're trying to achieve. Resilience. Uh, many of us are using the word resilience a lot more than we used to. When we think about uh, climate change and think about heat waves and drought and, and um, um, natural disasters, all, all the things that uh, cities are going to have to face in the future, resilience seems to resonate, seems to capture um, what, we're, what we need to, to design into cities. Resilience. Will we be resilient? Will cities be resilient in the face of long-term uh, global uh, decline in global oil supplies. Well, American cities, many American cities like Atlanta will not be terribly resilient. I've just come back actually from Dhaka, Bangladesh. Um, there's a city that uh, is not very car dependent actually and will do just fine, thank you, uh, in, a, in an era of long-term global oil decline. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So, so there are a lot of things we're trying to do um, at once. It is an exciting time because we're redefining the very nature of cities, uh, which is, which is uh, neat. So uh, new ways of thinking about cities, um, just to build on a couple of these images, uh, we, we do in fact need to move pretty quickly beyond fossil fuels. How do we do that? Well, uh, reimagining cities as places that uh, produce at least as much power as they need, this concept of solar cities and renewable energy cities. Uh, cities that produce that power from renewable uh, technologies integrated in, into the built environment. So uh, not the usual approach, which is coal burning, large coal burning power plants or large facilities that transport energy long distances and lose a lot of that energy uh, in the process. But integrating renewable energy production in, into built environments, that's a kind of a new, a new idea. And I'll give you some examples. A couple of Australian cities that are aspiring to be solar 
uh, cities, for example. Zero waste and circular metabolism, new way of thinking about cities. Cities really represent a complex flow of uh, inputs and outputs, you know, inputs in the form of energy and water and materials and food and those things come from somewhere. Um, often we don't care where they come from as long as they arrive. Uh, the other end, we, we produce a lot of things, a, a lot of outputs, a lot of waste, uh, solid waste, and greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution. Those things go away, we hope. They go somewhere. Uh, but increasingly, we recognize that a sustainable city is one that, that understands itself as this complex set of inputs and outputs as, as a metabolism. And we begin to aspire to a metabolism where the size of the throughputs is, is significantly reduced. Uh, the supply lines are, are shortened. Um, here, uh, um, mentioned the food issue um, that, that we want to, in fact, grow more food locally. That's a, that's a profound way of shortening the, the supply uh, lines we have in cities. Uh, and we also want to find ways of connecting the outputs and the inputs so that the, something that was a waste uh, is returned back to the city as a, a productive input. So um, that's pretty aspirational. And then some of the, the other ones, I think, probably speak for themselves. Well, there's one about, about food. It's really a different way of thinking about, about cities, understanding that cities aren't just these sort of black holes that absorb you know, food from far, far away distances from hundreds and thousands, in some cases thousands of miles away, but rather are bountiful. A new image of cities as bountiful places, places where we could actually grow a lot of the food, if not all the food we need. And, and we have uh, actually quite a bit of space in American cities to, uh, to do that. So, okay, so what, uh, a little bit more detail about what um, American cities uh, and global cities might look like if they were more sustainable. One of the things we spend a lot of time talking about in urban planning is the form, the urban form that cities take. We want to argue, uh, we do argue that uh, we want to create compact, walkable urban forms, denser urban forms. If you get the, the form right, the land use right, then that lays the foundation for doing a lot of the other things that we want to do. You've probably never seen this uh, graphic before, but it's become a bit famous in planning. It's actually the work of a colleague of mine, Peter Newman, from Australia. Um, and he charts, he, one of the few uh, people who has a, he has a global cities database and looking at relationships, in this case, between urban density on one axis and, and per capita fuel consumption on the other. It's not rocket science, of course. Um, in American cities, we, we spread out. We're sprawling. We're very car dependent. So our, our per capita energy consumption is very hot. Um, the other end, look at the Asian cities, and uh, usually when I show this graphic uh, to American audiences, they, you know, they protest a little bit that they, you know, we they don't want to become Tokyo or Singapore or uh, um, Hong Kong. Um, and so, for me, what what it often means is that we need to find models, and the models are often European. Um, and in this recent book uh, about, about Australian cities, some Australian examples, very compact cities that actually can profoundly reduce our land footprint, but also our energy footprint as well. If you uh, were to graph uh, per capita greenhouse gas emissions against density, it looks very similar uh, to that. So uh, a lot of what I do is, is tell stories about cities that have been able to um, tighten their urban form, maintain a tight urban form, uh, create more compact, walkable, mixed-use 
uh, living environments, and there are lots of examples. I started with Copenhagen. Copenhagen has a terrific uh, story, uh, in particular, of uh, maintaining an urban population and uh, reclaiming space in the center of that city back from the automobile, giving it back to, to pedestrians. Uh, they've even adopted an as official city policy that 2 to 3 percent of the parking spaces in downtown Copenhagen each year have to be converted back to pedestrian space. So since the 1960s, this, this has been a very interesting strategy of kind of strategic gradualism. Had they tried to do it all at once, it would have been hard, but they've created a marvelous uh, pedestrian network. People are outside and walking and, and eating outside. Uh, it's very interesting, by the way, um, one of the, the notions of uh, one of the uh, premises in biophilia is that we want to see, we want to get people to spend more time outside and experiencing uh, nature. They thought in Copenhagen that uh, that the Danes wouldn't uh, want to be outside as much; that um, they wouldn't want to be strolling and eating eating outside. And there was a lot of naysaying. Uh, Jan Gale, who uh, urban designer, had a lot to do with creating this network. Uh, Got a lot of got a lot of skepticism about this, and of course the, the story now the result is that, that, the, that yes, the Danes want to be outside, and, um, and it's the place to be and the place to see people and be seen and to eat outside. Uh, and, and it's been very interesting to watch over the years as the the outdoor eating season has gradually extended and expanded in that in that city, so that uh, now if you want to eat outside in November or December, uh, you sit down at a restaurant, not only will you be given a, a, um, a menu, you're very likely to be given a blanket as well, just in case you get a little cold. So an adaptation to, to, to being spending more time outside. Well, there are lots of other examples and some of the newer. Um, one of the ones we talk about in the Screen Urbanism Down Under book is the city of Melbourne. And Jan Gale calls it the Melbourne Miracle. It's a, it's a terrific story of how that city uh, has moved from being a very, very car-dependent American-style city to reclaiming its downtown and, and actually uh, more people living in. I mean, just about everything, as this quote suggests, right to try to enhance the quality of the center city. More people, uh, more people's streets, squares, lanes, and parks, fire sidewalks, quality materials. Uh, they covered all the downtown in this beautiful um, bluestone, um, these bluestone pavers, created no, more spaces like Federation Square and the lower right hand corner, reinvested in their historic tram uh, system, did just about everything, and including extending the grid of the downtown so that all the major new developments, uh, in fact, are connected and, and people can easily walk to the center of, of Melbourne. Uh, impressive results uh, here, uh, tenfold increase in downtown population since the 1980s, number of cafe seats gone up 275% in 10 years, 40% increase in foot traffic. They've gone from having two outdoor cafes in 1973 to 356 in 2004. There was a time in Melbourne when eating outdoors was illegal, <laughs> believe it. Uh, kind of crazy, crazy thought. Uh, so a terrific story. And um, a big part of the story, actually, is how you can make these outdoor spaces interesting, places where you do, in fact, want to spend more time. And, and one of the things that we found in almost every Australian city is a very uh, detailed, elaborate uh, public arts plan. And, and uh, giving importance to investing in public art uh, is part of the story. And so in Melbourne, 
Uh, you walk around and see the evidence of this. It's, it's uh, sometimes whimsical, but it's and fun. It uh, makes walking in that city very, very interesting. interesting. Uh, anyway, lots of uh, interesting uh, art in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect it. So the images on the left are part of uh, Melbourne's uh, Laneways art program. So this is an effort actually to support art installations that entice people to walk uh, down alleys and laneways um, they would not otherwise uh, visit. And the result's actually been uh, pretty dramatic. Um, reclaiming of those spaces, new cafes, new, new shops, new things going on, and those leftover and somewhat ignored spaces. By the way, the image on the upper right uh, is actually the only one not from Melbourne, and that's from Brisbane. <coughs> Brisbane has had for many years a very interesting public arts program. Uh, they encourage citizens to paint the traffic signal boxes in that city. Uh, and it's a kind of a neighborhood-based, uh, you come up with a design that, that connects with the, the neighborhood, the history of that place, and you propose it, and the city will give you the materials to do it and help you do it. And now there are 900 of these traffic signal boxes in Brisbane, and they're beautiful. And they add uh, an element of color and, and design and, and fun to, uh, to that uh, city. So, so okay, um, thinking about a, a green and sustainable city is one with compact urban form, uh, trying to get people out of their cars. So when you uh, have that dense, more compact development pattern, it makes possible things like transit. Uh, I'm a big advocate of public transit. Any uh, city that will want to be resilient in the future has to invest in transit. Uh, we know from a sustainability point of view, it's essential uh, compared, of course, to reliance on individual cars. Um, this is BTU, energy efficiency, BTU per passenger miles, no, no comparison. And uh, uh, we will probably never completely uh, do away with cars, but we need to uh, give better balance to other forms of, of mobility. So investing in transit, um, this is actually a neighborhood that we filmed, filmed in in Stockholm called Hammarby, a new, compact, dense neighborhood. Uh, one of the key lessons from European cities is that for transit to be successful and to get to keep people out of their cars, we have to make those investments ahead of time. We have to coordinate that investment with development and land use changes. So in this neighborhood, uh, the fast tram uh, was up and running even before people were moving into their flats. So they knew from the beginning that they had an alternative to, to driving their car. Plus, there are car-sharing cars uh, here and uh, extensive investment in bicycling facilities and actually a pretty good, uh, pretty nice walk to the center of Stockholm uh, as well. So uh, that's important. I'm a big fan of bicycles, and uh, I think we can make every city um, profoundly bicycle-friendly. That's me, by the way, um, back when, way back in the, uh, oh, 2000 or so, I did a book called Green Urbanism, um, learning from European cities and actually lived in the Netherlands for uh, a year writing this book and, and, and traveling around Europe. And uh, it's a bit embarrassing to, to tell the story, but my, my wife and I, we were consolidating our households, typical American family. We actually had three cars between the two of us. We sold two of the cars and we actually took a car with us to the Netherlands. It's bizarre to think this now, looking back. Um, well, that whole year, of course, uh, I basically lived on a bicycle, and uh, bicycle in combination with walking and, and transit. One of the problems we have, of course, in American cities 
the sedentary lifestyle, this, we know rising obesity rates, we know the health uh, impacts of this uh, very car, indoor and car dependent kind of lifestyle that we lead, but it's hard to figure out how to break out of that, right? Because Americans, uh, we have this sort of exercise scheduling issue, you know, we, to, we've got to exercise from 10.40 to 11.10, whatever it is. It's got to be on the, on the schedule, and you probably are going to get in your car to go, to drive to the place to do them. Uh, there's a great, a great slide one of my colleagues has of people riding the escalator up to the health, health club. You know, <laughs> heaven forbid that you get a little exercise on the way to getting exercise. So it's a kind of a recipe for failure. Uh, and when we moved to the Netherlands, I was a jogger. And uh, I pretty quickly stopped jogging, partly because they kept pointing at me and you know, jogging was kind of not, not something that the Dutch did in those days. But it was mainly because I didn't feel the need to jog. It was just part of my exercise, physical activity, being outside was just part of the normal stuff that I did in the course of the day. And we've got to figure out how we can um, incorporate that kind of automatic nature of physical activity into American cities and at least make that, make that possible. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand uh, cities, good cities, uh, cities that have invested in transit or in the bicycles have become a big fan of public bike uh, programs. We try to film wherever we go. Uh, now, a uh, little footage uh, from Barcelona. Some of you know about the, the Velo system, 20,000 bikes on the streets of Paris. Not a perfect story, but uh, a pretty good story. Uh, in fact, better stories, this is, again, Barcelona. Barcelona's system, uh, it's called Bicing. It's a little bit smaller, about 6,000 uh, public bicycles. And uh, it's a smart card system, so one of the reasons I'm showing you this film is to give you a little bit of a sense of the hub, how much activity there is around these bicycle stations. So you have a little smart card, you flash it in front of the screen, uh, it recognizes your membership and, and gives you a number, flashes you a number which is the number of the assigned bicycle. So you go and take that bike, use it, and then bring it back to any one of the, the stations around, around the city. And um, people in Barcelona have become a bit crazy about these bikes. And Barcelona is a walking city, but it's not been a bicycle city. So it's been remarkable to see the transformation uh, here and the catalytic effect that this kind of uh, infrastructure can have in, 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 that, in that city. The upper right uh, hand um, uh, slide, do you see the little doggy up there? That's not part of the bicycle program. Um, but it's indicative of uh, how much affection now um, residents of Barcelona have for bicycles. So this is an, an elderly guy riding his bike around with a little, little uh, doggy and the, uh, <laughs> accompanying him. So uh, we have lots of uh, other examples, of course, good uh, bicycle stories and um, bicycle-friendly cities. Uh, it's interesting, I've just come back from Dhaka, Dhaka, Bangladesh, where they have uh, uh, 15 million people in that city, and they, some of the in the kind of upper leadership of the city, uh, as you might expect, are aspiring to more American-style uh, cities. And car dependence, we see this, of course, in lots of places around the world. The Chinese are questioning, you know, bicycles, whether they're really modern, a modern mode of transportation. Uh, well, in, in Bangladesh, there is a struggle right now to try to protect uh, these bicycle rickshaws. And there are actually half a million uh, of these bicycles. And it's a major form of mobility in, in the city. 
So it's a struggle. We'll see how it turns out. It's very interesting to watch who's on which side. And uh, um, organizations like the World Bank are arguing that, you, that they need a more efficient um, system, you know, that uh, read car, car, cars and highways, and uh, that they need to be spending, they need to be devoting more of their urban space to roads, exactly you know, what we're trying to shift away from in, uh, in planning. Um, so anyway, it's been very interesting to watch, it was interesting to watch this the last two weeks ago uh, when I was there, the, the, the amazing things, the, the extent to which material um, gets moved around in that city on these bicycles, on the rickshaws, and, and, it, and by one estimate providing a million jobs, the, the single largest employment sector in the city of Dhaka is uh, um, these bicycles. So why you'd ever want to do do them do away with them is hard to hard to understand. So, um, but, but the the bicycle issues will be different, you know, depending on the place and depending on the uh, on the city. Um, this is interesting. Tried to get one of these, a picture of one of these in action. I couldn't quite uh, do it. But does anyone know what these are? Um, you're, you're probably Bengali is probably not your language. Um, you probably don't know what this says, but. These are um, school uh, bicycle buses lined up waiting for the school kids to get out. So they uh, actually load up and there's one person that, that you know, drives the, the bicycle bicycle bus. I don't even know that they, they don't call them that. It's just when I've made this up. But, <laughs> but that's essentially what, what they are. So it's remarkable, again, how much gets moved around, including school kids um, going to and from uh, school. So that's a kind of a different way of thinking about in infrastructure, which is one of the, the things that we're doing a lot of um, talking about in planning, is, is what kinds of new infrastructure do we, do we need? Um, and this idea of having a more distributed uh, infrastructural system. That, that may be more resilient, we hope is more resilient to things like climate change and natural disasters. So I mentioned the, the need to shift beyond um, large uh, fossil fuel burning power plants. This distributed energy system, the idea of having again solar and renewable energy uh, integrated into built environments. Well, we have some emerging examples uh, of that. This is one story in another place that we filmed in this movie. Uh, it's a place called the Western Harbor in Malmo, Sweden. And they, it's a redevelopment district, and they have set the goal of providing 100% of the power needed for that neighborhood from local, renewably-based uh, uh, power. And they've actually reached that, that goal. Um, not with any one thing, but through a number of different renewable energy technologies, including the, the lower left uh, image, which is um, uh, a facade-mounted solar hot water heating system, a kind of vacuum uh, technology that's um, uh, feeding hot water into a district heating grid. Very, very interesting. They also have a very large wind turbine and, uh, and some other uh, aspects, other elements of that renewable energy uh, plan. Many other cities, though, that are doing similar things. Back to Barcelona. Barcelona is one of the few cities to have adopted a minimum uh, solar energy standard or ordinance. Actually, if you build, any, uh, build a new apartment building in Barcelona, at least 65% of the hot water uh, needed for that building has to be supplied by solar hot water heating. So um, there's been this uh, amazing increase in the number of solar energy uh, installations, including photovoltaics, by the way. 
um, we have a new, a new ideas for building uh, structures, new ways of thinking about energy consumption, new aspirations. And many of us are arguing that we need to um, think in terms of buildings, buildings that produce more energy, per perhaps, than they actually require. Um, and these were a couple of images. So the last slide, uh, a very interesting green neighborhood in Freiburg, Germany, called Vauban. And uh, one of the things they have in Vauban are these so-called plus energy houses. These are, these are houses that are designed to require a tiny little bit of energy and then um, producing uh, more energy actually than, than the building needs over the course of the year. So they're called plus, plus energy uh, homes. There's a, um, there's a German uh, architect who's become kind of famous with these houses and actually lives in a rotating solar house, which is kind of an interesting place to live. So uh, cities imagining themselves as solar uh, cities. Can you imagine a city um, that is producing you know, all or most of the energy it needs from solar and renewable energy more, more, more broadly defined? Uh, this is, uh, these are images from Adelaide in South uh, Australia. And Adelaide, one of the first, actually one of the first cities to participate in the Commonwealth government's uh, solar cities program. And they are imagining themselves as a solar city. And for them, that means a number of things, including doing things like um, designating part of the downtown as a solar precinct and using it as an opportunity to demonstrate and test new energy ideas. The, the bottom image actually is uh, very interesting. These are um, street lamps. They, they uh, uh, have, of course, a lot of eucalyptus trees in Australia. And there's a kind of eucalyptus uh, called a mallee. And it's a kind of a scrubby uh, tree. And these are intended to look like mallee trees. They're, it's a kind of public art. But they have photovoltaics on the top. And they produce about seven times the power needed to, to power the the street lamp. So it's sending energy into the power grid. And that's a pretty interesting way of thinking about uh, uh, urban design elements. So, you know, could we rethink the, the building facade, the rooftop, the sidewalk, the, you know, every little feature in a city could be an opportunity to produce power. Uh, and that's, that's pretty neat and a pretty different way of thinking about, again, a kind of distributed energy um, system. So we have um, lots of new ideas, and one of them we've been, we've been talking about, something that the city of uh, Sydney in Australia uh, has been pioneering, this idea of green transformers, they call them. And what we realize now is that the infrastructure of the future in cities will, will not just be single-purpose infrastructure. It has, to be, it has to be doing multiple things. And that's essentially the idea here. Um, these, are, these are points. Um, along the city, you see a little map on the upper left, those little circles. They're intended to be power generating stations, just decentralized power generating stations. Combined heat and power, so it's producing electricity but also heat and cooling. Um, powered by uh, waste products generated in the neighborhood. So there, there is a kind of um, waste collection and waste treatment component to this as well. Uh, they're also intended to collect stormwater, retain and treat stormwater, allowing it to percolate back into the ground. 
Um, it's also new parkland, uh, new spaces for new public spaces and new public um, um, uh, pedestrian uh, areas as well. This is, you can see a little bit of a uh, um, crosshatch that tells you some of the different functions that will take place in a green transformer. So there are lots of really interesting new ideas for how we can produce power uh, in cities and in neighborhoods in cities. This is one that we discovered in Australia, uh, an inventor who's uh, invented something called wind pods. These are uh, air, airfoils that actually uh, collect the wind and they produce more power. Um, they actually make the, the turbine go faster than the normal turbine. So anyway, lots of new ways of thinking about infrastructure. This is a project, uh, another Sydney project that um, new ways of thinking about water infrastructure is uh, part of what we need to be thinking about too. Uh, not only are we worried about peak oil, we're worried about peak water in many, many parts of the world that you know, are reaching uh, limits in potable water. Um, Australia being one of them. And in this project, uh, all the water um, that falls on the site is virtually all of it is recycled and reused. And that's a kind of a different way of thinking about water uh, inf uh, infrastructure. I mentioned this idea of metabolism and beginning to think about cities uh, as uh, a form of circular metabolism or closed loop metabolism. Um, this is uh, back to Hammerby in Stockholm, one of the few neighborhoods in the world that has been designed from the beginning uh, with an understanding of the inputs needed and the outputs that will be generated and looking uh, from the start at opportunities to connect the inputs and outputs. So uh, the lower left-hand image uh, is uh, uh, a uh, natural gas uh, stove. There are about a thousand units that have these natural gas stoves that burn natural gas collected from organic household waste uh, from the neighborhood. So it's something you know that was a problem. The waste product you know, becomes something useful for, for, for the neighborhood. So beginning to understand cities uh, as sustainable circular metabolisms, if you will. Another part of this agenda uh, has to do with uh, learning from nature and imagining cities in the future that are more like natural systems. This concept of biomimicry um, that uh, Janine Vinyas and others have been writing about uh, in the last decade or so. This idea that we have you know, uh, millions of years of research and development um, there and nature that we ought to we have to take advantage of and we ought to use in some way. And um, I don't know if any of you have heard about Mazdar City in Abu Dhabi. Does this ring a bell at all? Um, actually, a, an odd juxtaposing for me on the way back from, from Bangladesh. Um, I actually spent a day in Dubai and went up to Abu Dhabi. This is the United Arab Emirates. And this is, of course, um, a pretty important oil producing part of the world, uh, you might say, kind of in the belly of the beast. And a very, very opulent, of course, very uh, wealthy place. In fact, when you look at the, the ecological footprints of different na nations around the world, the United Arab Emirates is number one. They don't have a large population, but they a very consumptive population on a per capita basis. Would you imagine who number two would be? Yes, the, the U.S. We're, we're <laughs> Thank goodness for the United Arab Emirates. So we're, we're number one, our footprint is like this compared to the rest. 
so, uh, but this is a, a very interesting project. Uh, it's gotten a lot of support from the government there. Uh, they are trying um, to show the way and to show what um, very, very low, low energy, uh, low footprint sort of uh, cities might, might look like in the future. And so Mazdar City has become it's a, a prototype. It's under construction now. There's not very much of it that actually exists at this point in time. Uh, but there are a lot of uh, plans and uh, a lot of renderings, and that's essentially what is, is here. But uh, there's uh, uh, an architectural firm called Lava, and they have done the design for Mazdar Square, which is what you see here, which is the center of this new city. This new city, by the way, is, is um, uh, planning to be carbon neutral, planning to produce all the power it needs from renewable energy, grow all the food that it needs. Um, there will be a kind of personal rapid transit system incorporated. We'll see if, if it all happens the way it's planned. But this is, this is sort of interesting. So this is um, a very hot you know, desert climate, of course. And, uh, and so for this particular design, they're imagining that you'd have these parasols um, that, would, that would actually be producing power for the city when they're extended, but they would, they would also provide shade. So um, what you would need in a, in a desert environment. You see all the photopics around the center, too, which would be producing a tower. So the idea is that you'd have these retractable uh, parasols, and then at, in the evening, they, they would be um, you know, open so that the square would be open, the, the parasols would be retracted. And uh, um, pretty interesting. That's what nature does. It's what, you know, what, what uh, flowers and leaves and certain trees and, you know, I always like to, I've been, I've been, I have to show this several times, right, because it's so, so cool, the, the uh, extended during the day and then what it would look like uh, at night. There are probably a thousand and one ways that, that cities could be um, modeled after nature, right? We could, we can mimic and be inspired by natural systems. This is just one, one example. And in fact, the whole concept of metabolism uh, is, is modeling after nature. Uh, the idea of energy plus houses is really, you know, kind of a, a natural uh, modeling after, after nature. The, the idea uh, that, you know, we design uh, like in nature, we, you know, um, design buildings in cities that you know, are uh, living off, off solar income and uh, not, you know, not extracting that, that non-renewable um, oil and, and gas. So, so biomimicry is an interesting sort of, sort of idea. Um, but we have lots of uh, examples of uh, other examples of buildings and uh, urban neighborhoods that are, are biophilic in some way. I'm actually going to flip ahead and go right to this um, discussion of biophilia. I don't know how I thought I was ever going to cover all these slides. Uh, another day, maybe. And I didn't even give you time to absorb them. Did I? Oh well. Um, I can go back and look at them later. But I, we are running out of time. Um, so I've been using this word bio, biophilic, biophilia. Uh, it's essentially, there's the, you've got the, the quick definition on the board, but Ed Wilson, Neil Wilson has popularized this idea, has written several books about biophilia, um, one called biophilia, another called the bio, biophilia, uh, biophilia hypothesis, 
essentially the idea that we are, as a species, hardwired to need contact with nature in the natural world. Uh, this is not something that is optional. It's rather something that we, we co-evolved to need and to be fully happy, uh, productive, um, you know, human beings. We need to have that contact. And it's not something that we, uh, we get once a month or once a year. It's something that needs to be all around us and needs to be integrated into our daily uh, lives. So uh, here it's just a slightly fancier way of saying it, the innately emotional affiliation of human beings to other living organisms. Innately is hereditary against part of ultimate human nature. So we're, we're hardwired to need this. So we, we know uh, there are all kinds of studies um, that demonstrate this to us. And we know, for instance, that um, test scores for kids go up in schools that have lots of natural daylight, full spectrum natural uh, daylight, for example. This is a study from the UK that shows the positive mood effects associated with walking in nature, having a walk out outside as opposed to, uh, in this case, walking in a shopping mall. Um, so in this particular study, uh, the walk outside, walk in nature, dramatic reductions in depression, anger, tension, confusion, fatigue, um, and an increase in vigor. Any number of other uh, studies that we could talk about, uh, and some of the more recent studies are, are quite interesting because they suggest that um, nature not only helps us to be more productive and happier, but it actually may help us to be better human beings, um, which is an interesting idea. That's essentially the, the finding of this, this study, and I won't, I won't go into the detail, but some researchers that uh, showed um, that uh, in simulated in, in experiments, people uh, in settings, in more natural settings, and office settings where there were more plants in nature, tended to show more generous behavior. Um, not, maybe not hard to believe. Um, exactly what's going on is not, is not clear, but it does seem that when we're around nature, we seem to be happier, healthier, um, uh, more kind of at home and more uh, open to, to the sort of full um, uh, human values like generosity. So uh, those more immersed in natural settings were more generous, whereas those immersed in non-natural settings were less likely, likely to give. There's a kind of an experiment about how much you'd be willing to, to give. And, and other studies have come to similar uh, sorts of conclusions. And so you know, it makes you think, well, uh, we really need that green that green space, those green elements, to you know, to activate that you know, the kind of full uh, humanness of ourselves. It's an interesting idea. The little image on the right is actually another Australian uh, example. Um, it's a sulfur-crested cockatoo. And when we moved, we lived in Australia. Uh, almost the first day we moved into our apartment, there was a, a group of cockatoos arrived at the balcony to investigate and to find out how generous we were. Uh, and <laughs> I'm not sure how generous we were uh, to them, but uh, um, it, part of the challenge in thinking about a biophilic city is how you can um, incorporate, integrate into that everyday experience contact with animals and, of course, plants and nature more generally. Uh, and, and often it's about 
paying attention to the things around you because there is an awful lot of nature already uh, in, in cities. So the other part of this for me uh, has been a concern about how uh, denatured our, our current lives are, or how um, we don't have so much contact in, in our daily lives, and particularly kids. And this sort of idea of denatured childhoods, um, the kids today are um, more than certainly was the case when I was growing up, tend to be more indoor oriented, right? More emphasis on computers and televisions and, and uh, texting and all the stuff, uh, media. And we thought actually that the hours per day of media that kids were getting was going to sort of plateau. Um, recent Kaiser Family Foundation study that shows actually that it's, it continues to go up. And that actually um, we're getting, we were now seeing a lot of this sort of double media, you know, um, kids are listening to something while they're playing something. You know, that it's <laughs> a sort of um, double dose of, 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 of media. Well, this doesn't bode well, uh, it seems, seems to me, for caring about nature, caring about the environment, um, and it doesn't bode well for stewarding over um, the environment in the future. So has anybody read this book? Um, by the way, this is a very, has become a very popular book. It's a trade, trade book. Uh, and uh, Rich Louvre has become a friend. He's, he's in this movie, which hopefully I'm going to stop in about five minutes, and we'll still have time to show you this film clip. Um, but Rich uh, has coined this, this term, nature, nature deficit disorder, as a way of describing this kind of denatured childhood that we're, that we're kids are growing up in today. And it's pretty accurate, um, I think. And um, he does this um, somewhat uh, alarming, funny sometimes thing of going around and interviewing kids, young kids, and asking them you know, questions and recording their answers. And, and so he collects um, quotes <laughs> like this one. I like to play indoors better, because that's where all the electrical outlets are. It would be sad if it weren't you know, so true. And so, uh, and, guiding of our uh, current way of living and, and it's very much um, connected to the way we're designing neighborhoods and cities, right? I and mean, that's a lot of the argument is that we, we should be designing places that allow uh, for, for kids to explore, to safely explore um, places where they have nature nearby, where they have sidewalks and path pathways and trails and neighborhoods that are connected uh, and we create the conditions where they can, in fact, uh, you know, walk from one place to another, back to that compact urban uh, form. And uh, what a lot of us are calling this, this, the, the agenda of designing for free-range kids. Have you heard that those terms, free-range kids? I mean, there, now there's several books with that title. Um, but I was, I, I, I grew up as a free-range kid. I lived in a neighborhood where it was, you know, you. Your parents called you back for dinner. That was, you know, it was uh, the dinner, the old-fashioned dinner bell, or the yell, things that kids, kids don't know that as much anymore today. Well, my Australian colleague Peter Newman says that designing for free-range kids is just is too low a bar. That we should be more aspirational. We should be designing for feral kids. I have a couple of feral kids. Yeah, all for that. So, what does that mean, and what did we, uh, uh, you know, what uh, could be part of the design agenda? Lots of things, and, and uh, a lot of ideas in this in this film. Uh, 
I'll show you just a couple more slides. This is actually another uh, bit of evidence about how disconnected we have become from nature. Um, the last five or six years, I've been doing a, a survey, a visual survey, giving a visual survey to my incoming students, asking them if they can identify uh, species of flora and fauna, mostly local species, and I have a, a kind of response sheet, and I'm actually asking them to uh, you know, write down what they see and what they what they can identify. And so, this is just one example. It's the the critter is a silver spotted skipper. It's a very common species of butterfly. And this past year, I think I've given this several hundred to several hundred students now. This past year was the first uh, time I had a correct answer that someone, uh, one of my students, could correctly identify what species it was. Um, the, uh, there's no difficulty, of course, in identifying all the corporate logos that we have. Um, but um, it's, it's telling that you know, kids can identify that those golden arches at you know, um, a mile away traveling in a 75-mile-an-hour car, but are not likely to recognize uh, something actually more profoundly part of their community or their home, um, and, and probably more, uh, probably near, more nearby than, than that. So uh, uh, it's interesting on, with the silver spot and spotted skipper. It's very, it's very uh, telling, I think, about what we don't know. I've had a lot of students tell me it was a moth, which is probably understandable, which like a moth. I've had a lot of students tell me it was a monarch butterfly. It doesn't look anything like a monarch butterfly. <clears throat> Apparently, the only butterfly Americans know is a monarch butterfly. It's a one butterfly. Um, and, um, I had two students tell me it was a hummingbird, which I thought was interesting. And this past year, someone told me it was a hummingbird moth, which I probably <laughs> a new species created in the, in the process. Of. So, uh, so it's not an insignificant issue, and um, I won't read this quote, but Paul Grishow talks about how names are passwords to our hearts, and uh, it's not insignificant that we can't. Not only do we not seem to know the name, we often don't even recognize species. So we've become profoundly disconnected on lots, of, on lots of levels. There are lots of ways that we could facilitate greater contact with nature, lots of um, biophilic um, opportunities. Anyway, one of the things we've been doing is developing a sound map um, for the city of Charlottesville. We believe that sound um, is part of the biophilic experience. It's uh, the, the the therapeutic sounds of, of uh, summer evening here, here in Charlottesville. You know, the, the tree frogs and katydids and all those nighttime sounds. Um, uh, like with the visuals, uh, there are most of the sounds that we hear uh, around us we don't recognize. There's the, the very important biophilic sounds. Um, this was a sound that, um, since I don't have it, I, I could probably uh, simulate it for you. It's sort of a very interesting kind of a downward whinny uh, sound that goes like like that. And uh, you would probably not recognize it, but uh, um, uh, it's, a, it's an owl, uh, an eastern screech owl, which is a very, very common species of owl, and a sound that we hear a lot. Um, many of us hear it and don't recognize it, just as the, we don't recognize that. We don't have that ocular rec recognition. We don't have the sound recognition. Uh, you don't recognize it. I'm going to go ahead and and um, so there it is. So, uh, so it's sound, it's multi-sensory, uh, it's creating the, the conditions in which kids can get outside and again move from place to place, and adults also. We have lots of terrific examples of cities. This is Helsinki in the background. 
has a multi-scaled uh, integrated um, network of nature. Um, and so you can walk out your front door and be in a, in a neighborhood park which connects with a larger park, which connects with a larger network of greens that so you can go from your, from your door all the way to old growth forest at the edge of the city. So we need these integrated systems. Uh, we've been working with the city in, in uh, the Basque Country in Spain, Victoria Gestez. They've just finished a very interesting green belt around their city and they're now uh, working on an outer green belt to connect with the inner green belt and, and finding creative ways to get people from their urban neighborhoods out to the nature around them, including these very creative uh, placards, great uh, signage, which shows you if you've got a few minutes, then you can go here. If you've got longer time, you can go over here. And actually showing them routes and, and uh, showing them ways to get to where they might like to go. So lots of stories. There's a free range kid. Um, and neighborhoods like Hammerby that have uh, these have invested in natural connections. So the upper image actually is one of two pedestrian green bridges that actually allow residents to walk over uh, these highways and connect to a, a large green uh, network. So um, green streets and green bridges and an image on the left, um, daylighting of, of streams, bringing back those streams that we've put underground in pipes, bringing them back to the surface, making them uh, a part of the neighborhood, greening all the, the built uh, elements in a city, including um, installing green rooftops, for instance. Used to be a radical idea. It's not so radical anymore. This is uh, the Ballard branch of the Seattle Public Library, 14 species of native grasses that, that wave in the wind. And you can see them all over uh, from a number of points around the neighborhood. Uh, the new Cesar Calais design in the Annapolis Public Library, almost entirely covered with a green roof, including native species of cacti. Cacti native to Minnesota, and realized that. Um, one of the things you'll see in the film uh, here in a second um, is this the concept of green walls. And this is um, a spectacular green wall we filmed in, in Paris, uh, designed by a French botanist by the name of Patrick Blanc. And they serve all of the same functions as a green wall. They create habitat, they retain stormwater, they cool the environment, cool the building, reduce energy consumption, sequester carbon, and they're just dramatic, visually dramatic, and a visual um, demonstration, visceral demonstration of our biophilic impulses. You can't, people can't seem to walk by this wall without touching it or hugging it or you know, interacting with it in some way or, or another. Okay, so here I'm going to just flip to the end. Here comes, here comes the slide presentation. This is another uh, Patrick Blanc wall at the Kaiser Forum Museum in Madrid. Uh, one of the stories told in this upcoming book is an effort um, to green uh, the Mission District in San Francisco, and this is Jane Martin, who's uh, founded a new uh, nonprofit called Plant SF, and they've created a new kind of regulatory permit to allow the neighbor, neighbors' neighborhoods to actually break up sidewalk and install and insert plants like this. Lots of other stories. This is San Diego. These are two urban trackers who are tracking a uh, female bobcat in the middle of the city of San Diego. Lots of very innovative um, nature and biophilic education programs. In the city of Stockholm, they have a, a program for certifying nature guides, and this is one of them on the left. Um, and the final couple of slides uh, have to do with animals in the city. And my 
friend who is now the, the new dean at the School of Architecture at UC Berkeley, Jennifer Walsh, has coined this, this term zoopolis. And she doesn't mean that she wants cities to be zoos, but what she means is that we, we should, in fact, reimagine cities as places that could accommodate um, and, and, and largely do accommodate um, animals, nature more broad, broad, broadly, but especially animals. And, um, and we have some terrific stories now of uh, cities like Vancouver that have been able to formulate plans, coexistence plans, helping them coexist with, uh, um, with coyotes in particular, but other, other wildlife as well. This is a terrific Walsh quote at the bottom Zoopolis to allow the emergence of an ethic practice in politics of caring for animals in nature. We need to re-naturalize re cities and invite animals back in, and in the process, re-enchant the city. This idea of re-enchanting cities by um, fostering you know, new contact, new opportunities for animals and plants and nature to, to be. To I feel like you didn't talk about cars very much. I mean, mm -hmm. In the United States, and cars and how much, how time. I, I live in New York City, I work for New York yeah. City, and Pedestrian. We have the fewest cars ever, and so people are very car-centric. And so, so many of these examples are in Europe and abroad, and how that shift doesn't seem to be happening here. People avoiding cars. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the answers is is the story of Baco, which is uh, let's figure out how to how to um, prevent cities from becoming more dependent on cars. But cities that aren't very dependent now. They think thinking globally. Most American cities, of course, are. It's a good question. It's a um, complicated answer. I think it's changing everything, changing the pricing structure. The example from Bourbon and Freiburg, um, they're actually charging people, you know, you can have a car, uh, you have to declare, you know, that you, you know, they'd rather you didn't have a car. If you have a car, then you're immediately presented a bill for $20,000 to cover the cost of the parking space that you need. Do you work at politics and change? I mean, and that, to me, that's so politically challenging. How would you do that? So. And from New York, you've just gone through you know, major congestion pricing, pricing got killed, killed, but more state level than in the city. Uh, a lot of support, of course, Bloomberg and others, um, and just the pedestrianizing that, that has happened in that, in that city, I have to say, very, 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 very positive. But there's no other, there's no city as, as sustainable from a transportation point, point of view as New York, at least among American cities. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting question because um, I, I feel like there's much more green in New York City than there is in Charlottesville. There's a lot of green there, isn't there? Yeah. Part of it's getting us outside and experiencing weather and climate and and, and um, this fellow David Ellen who's written this book, Green Metropolis, who basically makes the argument that Manhattan is the model uh, for, should be the model and, and he makes a good point that that like the example of people riding the escalator up to the you know we, if we don't create the conditions in which it's, it's automatic to be walking or more automatic then people won't walk and they'll be stuck inside and from that makes you know, cars and and so at least New York may not be as green as we'd like it to be but at least it is getting people walking and and out and outside and by some Indications that help this city. And, 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 and so, but but there really needs to be you know more progress everywhere. But tackling the car, your basic question about how do we uh, how do we get beyond the car? I'm not sure, and it's a little discouraging right now. There's so much emphasis on green cars and, and electric cars, and 
the sense that that's the way to go, you know, that's the solution, it's just simply to, um, we have a Prius, but, you know, okay, we're getting 50 miles on the highway, that's great, we're still driving, and we, we, we can't break out uh, from this car dependence by just simply changing the technology a little bit. Um, but that seems to be what the prevailing wisdom is, um, and that's too bad. It's a great question. I don't have a very good answer. It's changing, changing the attitudes, changing incentive structures. It's it's education. It's uh, putting all those other modes of mobility on a on a more even par uh, with with cars. You know, we, we teach drivers ed in high school. Well, maybe we ought to be you know, teaching something else, teaching safe pedestrianism, bicycling, as we're doing now. And making it harder to get a driver's license. Things that would be really politically charged, right? If you start telling kids they have to wait until 21, which would be a good thing for a lot of reasons. That young brain is still developing. It's probably too early to be driving a car in my opinion. There is a there is a complete correlation. We know that wherever people are getting more exercise, they tend to be healthier. Um, and there are there are these studies, CDC and others have, have shown that people are healthier in New York. And there's also lots of other reasons maybe um, concerned about diet and smoking and smoking campaigns and a lot of things that New York has been on the cutting edge of health for a lot a lot of but yes, the answer is, um, I don't think there's any doubt that, that cities that, that have more outdoor-oriented, um, you know, more physically active citizens, that, those, that, the, that that's that they're healthier places. And the nature part of it is, is, is a little bit more, you know, a little bit less uh, documented. But the evidence is building, building up. I just showed you a little bit of it. But, we know um, from the green elements and green buildings and green schools and, um, and you know, some of the experimental studies that, that are, are pretty conventional. And, and, uh, and it makes a lot of sense that we've only been in cities and living in hermetically sealed places inside buildings for a tiny little bit of our evolutionary history. So it's maybe not surprising that we need you know, that, that contact with so I think we need to stop because the next session is, is coming up.